and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. If you enjoyed Hamilton the Musical, you may well enjoy today's podcast. I'm talking to Linda Colley, the author of The Gun, The Ship and The Pen, a new book about constitutions and how they were written. We'll be chatting about an obscure proto-constitution you've probably never heard of that was written by Catherine the Great of Russia, what you don't know about the US Constitution, and how war, rather than fine ideas about democracy, was often the engine for new constitutions. Linda, welcome to the bunker. Very good to be here. You moved from a country that nowadays is not terribly bothered about its lack of a written constitution, uh, the UK in other words, to live in America, and you're now at Princeton. Remind us of some of the ways that the US constitution plays out in daily life there. Well, I suppose I should begin by saying I'm not sure if we can assume that written constitutions are not going to be bobbing more to the surface in the UK. I mean, if Scotland secedes, uh, the SNP have said they will have a written constitution. And of course, if the UK disintegrates, which is within the realms of possibility, we may see all sorts of constitutional uh, innovations in those islands. But there is a difference between having a codified constitution, by which I mean a single document which has the status of fundamental law and can't easily be altered by the legislature. Whereas our situation in the UK is that there is no single fundamental law that Parliament can't change if it so decides. That's, at least in theory, a big gulf. The US Constitution is now seen as an iconic document in US history. But in the book, you describe it as less a blueprint for a liberal democratic society and more a grimly necessary plan by a group of men who felt under siege. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, I don't think it's a sort of case of either or. Many of the men who assembled in Philadelphia the summer of 1787 did have high ideals, were well read, had thought hard about political ideas. They wanted to instill great ideas into their document, but they were also worried men. The United States had only just been created. It was still very divided. The the states had united to throw out the British, but they still had quasi-autonomous identities. The United States was frail. It was threatened from beyond. It was badly in debt. So this is a document that's driven by short-term imperatives and necessity, not just, if you like, highfalutin ideals. And I should say this is pretty much the norm. Most big constitutions are drafted in the wake of major emergencies of some kind. And in fact, the words, we the people which are so famous, were added at the last minute, weren't they? Yes, uh, the initial beginning was pretty mundane. We, the states of this, that and the other, agree, so forth. And the man in charge of style, 
uh, and they had someone to fix up the style of the document, just decided this was too flat. And he, he created this wonderful sentence, which was, of course, a lie in the sense that the people themselves had had very little to do with the drafting of the Constitution. Moreover, the people in the new United States were incredibly divided. The U.S. Constitution issued in 1787 omits from its provision most African Americans, just as it omits women and native peoples from its provisions, and it allows slavery to continue. I wanted to ask you about that because it was by no means the last word on constitutions in the US. And in fact, in 1827, Cherokee people wrote their own constitution. What happened to that? What became of it? Well, nothing good is the answer, except that other indigenous peoples did pick up the idea and run with it later in the 19th century. But the Cherokee thought, well, look, we have an independent identity. We have our land, which we've sat on for a long time. And so we will design our own constitution because what was crucial was that the Cherokee had acquired the ability to put their language into writing and into print. And writing and printing are just crucial to the surge of constitutions. But the Georgian legislature, which was entirely white-dominated, and Washington, D.C., just said, no, we're not having any of this. They disallowed the document. And in the 1830s, the Cherokee are just thrown out of the state of Georgia, pushed westwards, and on the way to that westwards journey, the Trail of Tears, as it's called, about 4,000 Cherokee perish. And then came the American Civil War, and that had a big impact on the Constitution, didn't it? It did, though not as much as some people hoped. By the American Civil War, all sorts of countries have got written constitutions many of them more ambitious than the United States Constitution. So what happens after the American Civil War, when many African Americans had fought on the Union side, was that you get three big amendments to the American Constitution, doing away with slavery, formally extending equal legal rights, and in the end, supposedly allowing black males to vote on the same basis as whites. That legislation is progressively dismantled, however, in practice, in the southern states, all sorts of things are introduced, including violence, uh, to to marginalise the black population in the southern states. So hence the the struggle for civil rights that continued in the United States after the Second World War, and of course is still continuing now. Do you think the US Constitution is still fit for purpose? I think all constitutions 
written constitutions, any kind of constitutions, are potentially fragile because they're the creation of fallible human beings who are sometimes corrupt and make mistakes. What I would say is that the best written constitutions are regularly amended. Thomas Jefferson thought that every written constitution should be amended every 17 or 18 years. One of the problems in the United States and one of the reasons for its political dysfunction arguably now is that its written constitution is very difficult to amend. Compare that with Norway, which got its written constitution in 1814. That constitution is still there, but it's been amended again and again and again because the system is more flexible. Can you imagine the US Constitution being amended again? What sort of circumstances do you think might might prompt that? Any major amendment to the Constitution needs the agreement of, I think, three quarters of the states. One knows how riven the United States is now. So that's going to be challenging. But we shall see. It's fair to say that women have rarely had a hand in writing constitutions Uh, We simply weren't educated for the purpose, as it were, until fairly recently. There is an exception, Catherine the Great, and tell us about what she wrote. Catherine the Great was a remarkable woman. And what I wanted to do in this book was highlight some of the individuals involved, not just in writing constitutions, but in writing texts that later contribute to constitutions. And Catherine the Great put together what was called her NACAS in the mid-1760s to create a legislative commission to reform the laws of the Russian Empire. Uh, She's a woman who loves writing. She's deep in Enlightenment culture. She's very ambitious. Her own position is fragile. Again, you can see concern, anxiety, feeding into constitutional creativity. And I was eager to underline the importance of this text because it's been neglected by those outside Russia. And I wanted to to underline what a very significant intellect Catherine is. She is normally and predictably described only in regard to her riotous sex life. And that has always been the case. During her reign, uh, very obscene drawings were made of her, highly gendered, uh, because uh, she was a widow uh, and had got rid of her husband in rather questionable circumstances, but she enjoyed her sex life. One doesn't dispute any of that, but she's also a very powerful and successful and aggressive empress who does some important legal work. And the the legal commission she summons to Moscow anticipates constitutional conventions in all kinds of ways. So I wanted to bring a rather different facet of her life and actions into this story and show that thinking about new kinds of written texts is beginning to bubble up 
even before the American Revolution. One of the ironic things about constitutions is that they often ended up codifying women's lack of political rights. Tell us a bit about how that happened. Well, women have, for most of history, in most societies, been marginalised in different ways. The convention is often that their identity has been folded into that of their father or their husband or their brother or whatever, and that therefore they cannot have a separate political identity. This is not their sphere. But I think what the early written constitutions do is they take those long-standing prejudices and exclusions and write them into law. And once you write something into law, it is, of course, much more difficult to affect a change. And it's one of the problems that feminists increasingly face as their movement develops in the 19th century, that more and more constitutions specify that women are not part of the political process. And this is not just in the West. You see this with the very important Japanese constitution of 1889. Before that, some affluent women in Japan had been able to vote in local elections and play a part politically in some fashion. But the 1889 Japanese constitution really does make explicit a binary divide in which women are not supposed to be involved in the political process at all. One of the surprising things I found in your your book was uh, the degree to which Napoleon was interested in constitutions, because I didn't think of Napoleon as you know, a lawmaker and a and a constitutional thinker. I thought of him as a warmonger, but you give a very different impression of him. I mean, obviously he did start wars, but he was also very keen on writing them, wasn't he? Napoleon loved writing of all kinds. Um, and, and one of the things I wanted to do throughout this book was get constitutions out of a rigid compartment and show their links with other forms of literature. Uh, Napoleon is the son of a lawyer, but he's also someone who, when he's young, uh, experiments with writing novels and journalism and history books. And I think that's partly why he's drawn to writing constitutions. But for him, they're also the other side of his conquests. He moved into the Italian states, into the German states, Holland, anywhere he can get, really, Spain, certainly. And to cement his new conquests, he creates or has created written constitutions, extending rights in some cases, though mainly and only to males, he's very chauvinist, but also making clear that in return for rights, these conquests will have to supply the French army with men and taxes. So these are instrumental constitutions 
giving out rights on the one hand, wanting taxes and men on the other. Britain's constitutional status is quite confusing to many people. We talk, of course, about constitutional law in this country, and sometimes people suggest that a British constitution really exists. I mean, there's a cartoon from 1848 in your book, and it shows other European nations being swept away by a flood. And there's an arc called the British Constitution, which is, you know, sitting there and it's floating serenely above them. And people invoke things like Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights, but they're not constitutions. Why has Britain never had one? Well, parts of Britain fleetingly did have quasi-constitutions in the 17th century against a background of massive crisis. The civil wars of the 1640s and 50s create a republic which lasts until 1660. And in that period, you do get some quasi-constitutions, the instrument of government of 1653 created by Oliver Cromwell is a fundamental law. But of course, all that's swept away with the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. And, you know, there's lots of constitutional documents in Britain, statute law, individual provisions like uh, the acts creating a Scottish and Welsh parliament in the 1990s and so forth. But in a sense, that's really the one of the problems in the UK. There's so many documents but they haven't been systematized into a single constitution, which is a fundamental law, which Parliament can't just sweep away, and which, of course, people can read and get a sense of. I suspect the people listening to this podcast, like, of course, the people making this podcast, will be people of high intelligence and considerable education. But if you were asked by a foreigner, explain to me in a few minutes what the mechanics of the British Constitution are, I suspect we would all find it very hard indeed, if not impossible. We know that jurists find it impossible. One a late law lord described the British constitution as a trackless desert, that people, even experts like him, could not find their way in it. And this is dangerous for civil liberties. It's dangerous for working out how we control the executive. If we don't know what the executive's powers are and what they can get away with, how are we going to constrain executive power when it goes wrong? So this, I think, is something that needs more attention. And I, I think attention is rising to these questions at present. I did find it amusing when you uh, explained that Prince Albert, uh, Queen Victoria's husband, actually dabbled in drafting constitutions and was drafting one for Germany. <laughs> during the during the 19th century it it seemed a, it seemed an enormous irony but um i wanted to ask you just finally about scotland because you've thought a lot about when countries declare independence write their own constitutions is it your feeling that we will have an independent scotland in the next in the next decade say 
I think it's certainly within the bounds of possibility. It partly depends how London reacts and, of course, what the Scots want as well. It seems to me that uh, devolution, which Tony Blair's government made a start on, only went so far. It created separate assemblies and parliaments for Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, didn't create a separate parliament for England. And I actually think that's a mistake in all sorts of ways. And what this should have been the core of is the creation of a more federal UK. And if you have a more federal UK, then you'd need a written constitution to tie it together. That's fascinating. Linda, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. The Gun, the Ship and the Pen, Warfare, Constitutions and the Making of the Modern World is published by Profile Books and it's out on 11th of March. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider backing us on Patreon. Just search for Bunker Patreon. And join us again tomorrow for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunk Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>